You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about lipid screening. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that all children receive dyslipidemia screening between 9 and 11, and again between 17 and 21 years old. However, we know that pediatric practices vary widely in the execution of this screening recommendation, and there are a lot of myths out there about interpretation and management. Here to help us learn more about cholesterol screening in pediatrics are two experts from our CHOP Lipid Heart Clinic. We have Jordi Martino, a pediatric nurse practitioner with the Cardiac Center at CHOP, and Dr. Rachel Schustak, an attending cardiologist with the Cardiac Center at CHOP as well. Thank you both so much for being here today. Hi, Katie. Thank you so much. Uh, We're excited to talk with you today. Yes, thank you so much for having us. We're excited to elaborate on this topic a little bit and share what we do in our clinic. Well, thank you. We appreciate your perspectives. Now, this is a really common topic for pediatricians, as I mentioned, because this is a recommended screening, and it's something that we've all learned about in our training. But I know you have a lot of information to give us that is new and maybe an update on this topic Now, I don't want to start off aggressive with you, but cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death in adults. But is it really a childhood or adolescence problem? It is a problem in childhood and adolescence. While it is rare for children to develop plaques, the hallmark of atherosclerosis, we do know that arterial fatty streaks can be found in children and adolescents with high cholesterol levels. While these fatty streaks are generally reversible, if the abnormal cholesterol levels persist, these lesions can progress to plaque. In the Bogalusa heart study, which was an epidemiologic study of cardiovascular risk factors in children and adolescents, the prevalence of fatty streaks was about 50% in children aged 2 to 15 years, and the prevalence of plaque in this population was about 8%. With today's current obesity epidemic, we hypothesize that these rates are likely even higher than that. Okay, so you've convinced me that children can have evidence (laughs) (laughs) of atherosclerotic disease or elevated cholesterol. But then why, if it happens at young ages, does the American Academy of Pediatrics recommend screening between the ages of 9 and 11? What's special about that age range? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So they chose 9 to 11 years for screening since it's a period of time where cholesterol is relatively stable. Lipid levels change over the lifetime, particularly during puberty. There can be a 10 to 20% decrease in cholesterol levels. So some children with genetic hypercholesterolemia, or FH, may be missed if lipids are screened during that time period. So really the goal is to try and catch children prior to puberty, but also at a time point where you can act on the high cholesterol levels. And for those with LDL cholesterol levels high enough to warrant medication, statins are FDA approved beginning at age eight. Hmm, interesting. Okay, well, thank you for clarifying that. I wonder with puberty becoming earlier and earlier in our population, if that screening recommendation might change. So we'll have to have you back if it does. (laughs) That's a great thought. 
So while we're talking about routine screening at 9 to 11, I would imagine that there are some high-risk groups who you might want to screen earlier or maybe more often. Is this true? And if so, what are some of those risk factors in pediatric patients? The risk factors for elevated cholesterol in the pediatric population tend to be obesity, family history of high cholesterol, poor diet, sedentary lifestyle. So we definitely want to see these kids with these risk factors more often and be screening them more often. We should also be screening children who are at higher risk for cardiovascular disease in general more often. So our children with hypertension, type 1 or type 2 diabetes, elevated lipoprotein A levels, inflammatory conditions, and uh, childhood cancer survivors. There's actually a great paper put out by the AHA called Cardiovascular Risk Reduction in High-Risk Pediatric Patients, kind of a mouthful, (laughs) that does risk gratify these patient populations and offers some guidance about screening, you know, when, how often to screen and management of these patients. That's great. Thank you for that resource. Well, let's talk a little bit about the logistics of cholesterol screening in primary care. So can we use point-of-care finger sticks or should we do a venous sample? And this is the age-old question, which is, should they be fasting or can it be random so that we can just catch them while they're in clinic and get this done? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think one that I think a lot of primary care physicians struggle with and we even struggle with sometimes in our own clinic. So yes, you can definitely start with a point of care finger stick. But if it is abnormal, you should obtain a venous sample. And as difficult as it can sometimes be to obtain a fasting sample, it really ideally would be fasting. And this is largely related to the triglycerides. Mm. Triglyceride levels can vary widely throughout the day depending on what is consumed. And it can be difficult to know what to do with an elevated non-fasting triglyceride. So oftentimes then you're putting the patient through another set of labs in order to get a fasting triglyceride level, particularly if a patient eats a meal that's high in simple carbohydrates or sugar or maybe had a snack after school. Those can significantly elevate the triglycerides, but it's a less meaningful number because the patient was not fasting. Mm-hmm. Great. So maybe we start with a point-of-care finger stick and catch them while they're in clinic. And then if that's abnormal, we have them do a fasting venous sample later on. Exactly. Great. So what are the cutoffs then that we should be using for normal and abnormal? And how do we use those cutoffs then to determine who gets lifestyle counseling and follow-up in primary care versus who we should refer? Yeah, so there are NHLVI and AEP guidelines for normal cholesterol levels in children. For LDL cholesterol, a normal level is considered to be less than 110. Borderline is 110 to 130, and elevated is greater than 130. In those less than 10 years, normal triglycerides are less than 100, and in those greater than 10 years, normal triglycerides are less than 130. It is important to be aware of these cutoffs because triglycerides are frequently flagged abnormal by the lab, but are actually normal by pediatric standards. Mm. A normal HDL is greater than 45. Borderline, we consider 40 to 45, and low is less than 40. And I really would caution most practitioners against relying on the total cholesterol number. We not infrequently see patients that are referred to us for an elevated total cholesterol. However, the total cholesterol can be really quite elevated due to a high HDL, but that is very different than a total cholesterol that is elevated due to a high LDL. Instead of the total cholesterol, we use something called the non-HDL cholesterol, which is the total cholesterol minus the HDL. 
And really, it essentially represents all of the bad or atherogenic cholesterol particles. And we use a non-HDL cutoff of normal as less than 120, borderline 120 to 145, and greater than 145 is elevated. For children without any risk factors, I typically recommend that primary care providers start with lifestyle counseling and recheck labs in three months. If labs are persistently abnormal over a period of six months to a year, the patient should be referred to the lipid clinic for further evaluation. For children with cardiovascular risk factors and abnormal lipid values or with extreme elevation in the LDL or triglycerides, I would use an LDL cutoff of greater than 190 or triglycerides greater than 400. A referral should be made directly to the lipid clinic. Those are great tips. So for routine healthy kids without any risk factors, lifestyle modifications, and a recheck in three months sounds like it's the plan of care. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Great. And then thank you for highlighting the high-risk populations. Now, with those abnormal levels, a question that I have is how do we know if a patient's cholesterol is elevated due to something that is inherited or like familial hypercholesterolemia, or I'm going to go with the easier version that you told me, (laughs) FH, or if it's due to lifestyle factors? Is there a way just from the numbers, like are children with FH having cholesterol levels that are extremely high, or is it really hard to know just from getting the cholesterol? So our children that have genetic hypercholesteremia, like FH, will generally see LDL values that are very significantly elevated. So often when I see a kid that comes into the office with an LDL greater than 160, a sort of indicator goes off in my head that this is likely genetic in nature. Mm. Of course, there are exceptions, but, you know, it sort of indicates that we should dig deeper and sort of be thinking about a genetic cause. Mm. FH is actually more common than you would think. We see it in our clinic pretty often, so it's important to sort of keep an eye out for it. And the management does differ um, for those with a significant genetic high cholesterol in the sense that the cutoff for medication initiation is a lot lower. So many people in this population will require medication at a younger age alongside of lifestyle modifications. Now, lifestyle modifications are a big part of the counseling that we do when we have patients with an elevated cholesterol and or risk factors that are present. And the AHA and AAP both endorse recommendations that include increasing fruits and vegetables, fish, whole grains, low-fat dairy products, as well as limiting sugar-sweetened beverages and foods and salt. Can you translate this, though, into practical tips that we can share with families? I mean, this sounds like a ideal diet to me, but I don't know how many children you've met, AHA and AAP, but (laughs) these aren't always their favorite foods. So how do we make this practical? Yeah, it's definitely tough. So I always start by saying uh, adding a fruit or vegetable to every meal is a great place to start. If juice or soda is part of the everyday diet, I do recommend cutting that out completely. But otherwise, I focus on moderation rather than restriction. So, you know, processed snacks, chips, fast food and candy are fine, occasional treat. But everyday food should be minimally processed, low in saturated fats and low in refined carbohydrates. I also recommend that my patients try to incorporate some healthy fats into their diet. So I'll sometimes recommend salmon or canned tuna if kids like fish, like one to two times a week, along with avocados, nuts, and Greek yogurt in moderation. Great. Thank you. And do you ever work with nutritionists to help guide families who might be struggling with the lifestyle factors? Yeah, so actually all of our new patients have an opportunity to meet with our dietitian. We actually, you know, encourage them to. So 
during that first visit, they're able to sit down with the dietitian and get really sort of tailored recommendations for their everyday diet. That's really helpful. Now, what other non-pharmacologic approaches have some evidence in lowering cholesterol levels? So increasing fiber is really a big part of improving triglycerides and does actually have a role in lowering LDL to some extent as well. So I do suggest that families aim for two to three grams of fiber per meal or snack. And we already talked about some of those great sources of fiber, like fruits and vegetables, but fiber is also going to come from your whole grain products, beans. And I do routinely recommend ground flaxseed as another great source of fiber. And it can be added into batters, smoothies, or oatmeal or whatever else kids like as sort of like a disguised fiber boost. Hmm, That's a great tip. Another important thing is exercise which does have a role in triglyceride reduction and can actually boost HDL. As Rachel was talking about, that's the good cholesterol that we want to be higher. I do recommend that my patients find a way to be active every day. Kids should really aim for about 30 to 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous exercise every day. Great. Now, when is a pharmacologic approach indicated and what does that typically include for children? Yeah, so we use cutoffs to guide our medication initiation, and these cutoffs are based on the number and type of patient risk factors. And so Jordy had mentioned that paper that came out from the AHA, the scientific statement on risk stratification, and we really use that to help guide us when to start medication. So for LDL, our threshold for medication initiation in a patient with no risk factors is an LDL of 190. And that's why we really want to see these patients in our clinic is because they likely qualify for medication at that point. If a patient has one risk factor or a moderate risk factor, that cutoff is lowered to an LDL of 160. And if a patient is considered to be high risk or has multiple risk factors, we usually use an LDL cutoff of 130. And the first-line treatment for high LDL is a statin, typically either atorvastatin, which is Lipitor, or rosuvastatin, which is Crestor. For elevated triglycerides, the cutoff for medication initiation is triglycerides greater than 400 or greater than 200 with an elevated non-HDL of greater than 145. And first-line pharmacologic treatment for elevated triglycerides are phenofibrates, such as Tricor. However, if the triglycerides are borderline or families want to try other interventions prior to jumping to pharmacologic medications, we often do start with high-dose fish oil, ideally aiming for 2 to 4 grams of DHA EPA components per day, and then move on to the phenofibrate if the triglycerides continue to remain elevated. But we have had some really good success in the past with fish oil alone. That's great. Well, after hearing all of that, I am extra grateful that we have the CHOP Lipid Clinic (laughs) to navigate some of that. So can you tell us a little bit more about what happens there and who's on your team? And then just remind us again, you mentioned some indications for referral, but who are the types of patients that we should be referring to you? Sure. Um, So coming to the Lipid Clinic isn't unlike going to a regular checkup. We'll go over medical history, family history, and lab results and sort of work with families to determine a plan. So each patient will meet with a clinician. And then, as I said, our new patients will have an opportunity to chat with our dietitian afterwards. Our team is made up of a few different attending physicians, and they come from several different disciplines, which is kind of cool. We have physicians from cardiology, endocrinology, and GI. And then there's me, a nurse practitioner, and as I mentioned, a dietitian who's present for new visits. As for when to refer, Rachel did discuss those cutoffs for abnormal versus normal values. 
and patients should be referred to us if values are very abnormal, as she said, um, so over 190 for LDL or 400 for triglycerides. If they're abnormal but not that high, they should be counseled by their PCP, try lifestyle modifications for three to six months, and then the lab should be rechecked. If those abnormals are persistently elevated and do not resolve with lifestyle modifications at that time, they should be referred to us. And then, of course, any abnormal lab values, along with the risk factors that we've discussed previously, can be referred to us right away as well. Great. Thank you. You are all such a great resource to our patients, and we appreciate what you do. But you've also empowered us to really manage lipids better in primary care. So thank you for all of the information that you provided today. There was a lot that we went over. I'm wondering if you have a key takeaway message that you want primary care pediatricians to know about lipids. I think my number one take home would be that lipid screening should occur between 9 and 11 years of age and that genetic forms of high cholesterol are way more common, I think, than most people realize. About one in 250 people do carry a diagnosis of FH. So if you do work in a general pediatrician practice, you are bound to at least have a handful of patients likely with this diagnosis, and it is important to refer them in a timely manner. That's great to keep in mind. Thank you. And I would just say that, you know, lifestyle and diet counseling can go a long way. We really can see dramatic decreases in the triglycerides and to some extent the LDL as well through modifications to the diet as well as just encouraging kids to be active every day. Right. And so many other good health benefits tied up with that, too. Mm -hmm. So thank you both so much for teaching us more about lipids today. And we are happy to hear about the CHOP Lipid Clinic so that we have that resource if we need it. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Yes, thank you for having us. If anyone has any questions after listening to this or seeing a patient and they have questions about what to do with the labs, please definitely always feel free to reach out to us. Great. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. 